This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Getting high on your scenario supply. Crime and upward mobility. Hallucinations. And my San Francisco book raid. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Robin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash Robin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ethan Cordray asks Ken and Robin, My wife and I both enjoy writing and running RPG scenarios, but also playing in each other's games. How can one of us play in scenarios we both helped to develop? Uh, Robin, do you have any experience like that? Um, I, I guess uh, the closest we would get is the uh, annual Pelgrane Game Fest before Dragon Meet, but is there another... Do you bounce ideas off your your home group, and then run them through them? Um, no, I, I use the traditional uh, GM's uh, bag of surprises, so I don't collaborate with them on scenarios per se. So this is, I guess, uh, hypothetical advice rather than uh, field-tested advice. And I would say that the first thing I would do is fudge the definition of scenario so that, for example, in uh, the Trail of Cthulhu campaign I wrote called The Armitage Files, it's an improvised campaign. And so what it does is it presents you with a lot of different bits and pieces that the players then decide what is important. And 
then they interact with them, and that changes what the nature of the storyline is and even the nature of the characters. So the NPCs chapter presents the characters in both a stalwart version in which they are a, a heroic version of that character that is uh, helpful to the investigators to the extent that anyone is ever helpful to a Call of Cthulhu investigator. So, you know, when you're in a total jam and the uh, Shoggoths are knocking at your door, the stalwart character is the one who uh, somehow rescues them or gets the information they need to them so that they can get out of trouble. And then there's just sort of a standard uh, version who's kind of a neutral, ordinary person who uh, does not enter into the uh, world of horror and danger one way or the other, particularly their civilian. And then there's the sinister version in which what if this character is actually a villain? Why why are they uh, an antagonist figure and what is their big secret? And in play, you may well ignore the specifics of any of those three things, but you've got that sort of multivalent character to plug into uh, whatever it is that happens. So I would suggest that if there's a group of people who, or a pair of people in this case, who want to collaborate on the details of the world and the scenarios, that the scenarios would have to be heavily improvised and contingent. So that if you helped write up old man Silas, who lives in the hut on the road on the way to where the Migo are, you supply the uh, person who's like, your partner is going to actually run the scenario with several options, the, the stalwart, ordinary, and uh, sinister, for example. And then in play, uh, not even necessarily ahead of time, the GM can decide which of those is true and to what extent that is true. So that although you, having created Old Man Silas, kind of know something about him when you encounter him, you don't know which shoe is going to to drop, whether he's going to be helpful, indifferent, or evil. Right. I uh, think that's one possibility, certainly. Um, like you say, fudge the definition of scenario. I think another possibility is that you try and move your collaboration out of the specific scenario and into the world, and then one of the, 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 the partner, the spouse, can play the sort of John Constantine-type guy who knows stuff about the background but can still be surprised by the fact that, oh, no, this room actually does contain a demon, or these uh, people over here are not just low-level voodoo gang thugs, but have become, you know, possessed by a, a cannibal uh, monstrosity or whatever. So they know enough to be, to be able to play the guy who's, like, you know, in touch with the street and can uh, co-create with the GM, which is something that, as a GM, I always enjoy when a player feels the scenario or feels the setting strongly enough to try and help out and build more of it. Uh, and I think that you can certainly routinize that with a with a spouse who's spent some good amount of time uh, co-plotting the world with you. But for the surprises and uh, thrills of the individual scenario to be surprising and thrilling, you kind of have to have a deal that maybe it'll help plan the first half of it or the first two-thirds of it or the back the general background, the knowledge of who the bad guys might be but then you have to sort of step away and, and uh, recuse yourself from the actual twist or the actual big, uh, scary reveal. Right. And I think that you've hit on a big key by saying that the character you play has to be better informed than the average PC so that you can bring your information that you developed into play and sort of assist the uh, GM. But then there's a reason why you are sometimes surprised. And so one way is that you could be someone who has a 
uh, visionary sense. So you have a sort of limited precognition. You have omens. You have instincts about people. You have sort of extrasensory perceptions. And so that explains why you have a bad feeling about old man Silas. Although, you know, in general, anyone whose name begins with old right, man in a Cthulhu a scenario, you should have a yeah. certain, certain background uh, level yeah. of This of is true. In Cthulhu, it's easier because being suspicious of people is pretty much your, your default. <laughs> no, you know, knowing that something behind the, the, the seeming scrim of reality is actually a horrible truth is less of a big surprise than it is in, say, Traveler. Yes, there's, there's uh, the surprises that old man Silas's uh, lollipops are perfectly innocuous, and so is he. And another way that you could do it is you could have a character, uh, let's say you're doing a dungeon scenario. So, uh, first of all, in a traditional dungeon, the level of surprise is there, but it's not necessarily enormous. So the fact that you know that there are orcs in this room in the dungeon and that uh, there's a treasure hidden somewhere there, that doesn't actually, although, you know, surprise is a lot of fun in some formats, it doesn't actually ruin the effect. And if the GM knows that you are playing a character who is informed, uh, he can then just take that into account in developing the tactics of the creatures. So you could be someone who has... Uh, explored the dungeon in astral form and know what you're in, in for, and the creatures kind of sensed your presence as you astrally projected into their uh, uh, underground living room, and they can take countermeasures. And so then if, if you... Uh, so I guess this answer is look for ways to take uh, surprise out of the equation, which is certainly possible in some genres, although, you know, not all of them. I think if you take surprise and mystery... Out of any gumshoe game, for example, you've <laughs> or, taken everything. Or a big chunk of it, anyway, yes. certainly. But in uh, other games that, you know, the, a traveler game, for example, you could have all sorts of data. You can flip it on its head and say, we're going to play a campaign where all of the characters are ridiculously well-informed, and the surprise is what happens in the moment when the information meets the tactical yeah, situation. Yeah, I think another possibility is... Uh, if it's you and your spouse that both enjoy uh, writing the scenario together, um, consider writing meshed scenarios. Uh, I don't necessarily know if the given campaign stru structure works uh, that well, but, you know, do it as an exquisite corpse where you write something and you know, and you tell uh, the spouse, here's the lead out, and then she has to get the next stage going along, and then you get to do the next stage going along, and you switch out the GMing when you're doing the other person's story so that although you may have a general notion of how the overarching structure might look and you know a few very key points that will let you navigate towards them as you run, you're just as surprised by the next thing. I, that's not quite collaboration, I guess. The, the, our, our whole answer is <laughs> sneaking around and ch secretly changing the meaning of words in Ethan Cordray's question, I'm beginning to suspect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah. you tell us something about the question. Um, uh, we, we don't like to say no to our listeners here on uh, Ask Ken and Robin, but it's a, it is a tall order. Um, another thing I guess you could do is is think of it in terms of making it modular, right? So that if you... Uh, you design bits and pieces that are meant to be used in, in a scenario, but it's the GM who decides when those bits and pieces come up so that you uh, design a dungeon room, but you don't determine where in the dungeon it is. And so if you open the door, you might go, oh, well, here's the room where the orcs are, and there's the glowing sphere in the background, and there's a moment where you know more than the rest of the players because, you know, glowing sphere, orcs, and everything. But still, the once you've 
the GM then says, there's orcs in a glowing sphere and they roll for initiative, then all of that uh, advantage that you have is uh, evaporates. And the other, uh, and another way is, is I guess you can, we want to look at ways to make sure that the other players don't feel that they are mere bystanders in your collaboration with the, the uh, player slash creator so that they, uh, you have to find some sort of way that they feel that they're benefiting from the lack of surprise that you feel or that that lack of surprise is. Yeah. Irrelevant. The, I, I like that notion of, of everyone of uh, co-designing a whole ton of modular bits. And you can do that. You can even do that in gumshoe in the same sort of, Armitage Files Dracula dossier way where you design an NPC or a conspiracy or a weird location or something and you're like, oh, this will be fun when that happens. And then if you uh, we throw back and you use the notion of your character as the imperfect psychic uh, or the imperfect precognitive, that when that thing shows up, then that character maybe has to take a, a you know, they have to roll sand or they have to get a stun check or whatever happens in the course of your game to prevent them from being able then to immediately move in and... Uh, and take advantage of their uh, unfair knowledge uh, that they can still say things maybe, or they can still do some things, but they can't be the people who then, you know, open the door, recognize the room and solve the problem. They open the door, recognize the room, are stunned by their psychic re revelation, and then people have fun in it. And then they can come in and sort of uh, uh, either bat clean up or, or help out or, or whatever, so that it provides multiple, multiple opportunities for both spouses to have moments of, of recognition and joy, which I, I would think is part of the fun of this, but without ruining the game for other people, which is, I think, the greater imperative. And I guess what we're saying implicitly and should say explicitly is that a sandbox structure is your friend. Yes. So that yes. if you are creating just a bunch of world bits for the players to turn into story by deciding to investigate and interact with them, that there isn't a set plot line for anyone to spoil because nobody, including the GM, knows what is going to happen when the players start taking the reins of the narrative and, and doing things. And what you could do as the PC slash creator in this is you can then help shape decisions for the other players. So be, you're the one who knows the world a little better. You're the Oracle or the uh, knowledgeable explorer or whatever it is that fits whatever genre you're using. And you can say, well, the things that I think would be interesting to investigate are the uh, cow disappearances over here or possibly the uh, crop blight over here, or there's this political rebellion in this third location. And so that you are kind of acting as a uh, you're not the heavy hand of the GM saying, here's your three choices for tonight. You're a character doing it uh, in your character's voice. But then you kind of, after you presented those choices, if you sit back and let the other players decide what the action of the night is, whether it's the blight or the rebellion or the disappearing cows, then neither you nor the GM have uh, lost the element of surprise for yourselves. And that allows you to overcome one of the difficulties of a sandbox game is that quite often people think they want a sandbox but aren't necessarily proactive mm -hmm. in seizing the reins of the narrative and going after things. Yeah, I think the you're, you're absolutely right to say that the sandbox is going to be a much easier thing to do than a, a, a threaded narrative of any kind. And that's partly why I think we're both in agreement that doing this with a gumshoe game is going to be a lot trickier than doing this with some more conventional sorts of, of role-playing engines. 
Um, I think that another thing that you might, you know, while we're talking about moving away from uh, conventional narrative, you might say that this is a really great opportunity for the two of you to collaborate on a drama system game or collaborate on elements of, say, uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, where the they may collaborate and, and know what the town is like, and so the they play the dog who's from this area, and so they know the people, and then they have a, a way that they think it should go, but in the in the setting, they're like, oh, I can't allow my connection to these people to, you know, mask my responsibility to the king of life. Or any other sort of game where the the situation, once discovered, unfolds either of itself or in a non-linear uh, fashion. And so, you know, you can start looking at other indie game spaces and, and say, how, how can we co-create something that doesn't have the, the same threaded narrative that, uh, that, that say, F20 games do? Right, because those games, including Drama System, give you the opportunity to create a world together, but you're doing it during play, and not just between yourselves, but with everybody at the table. And so I think that might be a way to uh, scratch that itch without uh, going through all of the gyrations and definitional alterations that we've uh, been engaging in in this uh, segment, which uh, conveniently happens to be about segment length. So let's move on to the next segment. This episode is also brought to you by the Plot Points Podcast. Plot Points views role-playing games through the lens of literature. Plot Points takes a deep look at adventures from dozens of systems. Discover the link between Pathfinder's We Be Goblins and the poetry of Christina Rossetti. Learn how the recession of 2008 aided the recent flowering of geek culture. Can a role-playing game have a political leaning? Hear about a friendly local game store that pays Game Masters. How can gaming give meaning to life other than by paying Game Masters? Listen to an advanced review of the Dracula dossier. Well, I'm sold. Need we say more? Probably not, but there are still a couple of bullet points left. Novices and grizzled veterans can both find something to enjoy. Entire episode on the Dracula dossier, people. Find the Plot Points podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or at plotpoints.libsyn.com. Listen to us, then listen to them. The wail of sirens and the footfalls of perps escaping down alleyways and climbing up chain-link fences and disappearing from the police tell us that we've once more taken a look at the crime blotter. And this is a segment in which we uh, look at uh, crime and malfeasance uh, in the real world and uh, try to find ways to apply it to our games and fiction. And in this case, I thought we would look at a uh, Malcolm Gladwell piece that was written in August for The New Yorker, which I digitally clipped and saved to talk about later. And guess what? It's later. <laughs> so the thesis of this piece is that a traditional trajectory that we uh, think of in terms of uh, the way that communities of newcomers arrive in America, get involved in organized crime, and then gradually over generations go straight has been disrupted by changes in the late 20th century. So basically, in brief, the thesis is that uh, in the early 20th century, and I guess a little beforehand, that uh, groups who were 
either sh shut out completely or partially shut out from uh, getting ahead and, and participating in the great American project of uh, making money and advancing yourselves legally found ways to do it in the underground economy. And the original generations uh, were as violent and dramatic as any gangsters who would wind up in a gangster movie. But then gradually over time, they work their way integrating into the power structure and successive generations uh, go increasingly legitimate. And that even the illegal activities of a late stage organization uh, like the mafia sometimes become sort of surprisingly pacific, right? That they're uh, still illicit, but they are kind of peaceful and, and well-run and maybe even sort of contribute to society in a way. And the hilarious example in the piece is of the mob control of parking at the Fulton Street Fish Market in New York City, which uh, notoriously uh, took a lot of effort to root out. And once they got the mob out of Fulton Street Fish Market, the prices to the vendors there decreased by 2%. Because uh, guess what? They had this kind of old school customer service perspective and their rates for their service were kind of cheap. <laughs> they were kind of doing their job of distributing parking rights uh, reasonably effectively, albeit completely illegally. Although, again, I guess that, that speaks to the, the fact that if... Um, uh... You know, the the iron hand of the market will work on whoever's in the market, regardless of whether they're there legitimately or illegitimately. There was another um, good example about the, uh, the the creation of sort of the garbage hauling union in Long Island, where they 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 had the unions, but then they also had sort of a what do I want to say, like a a, a business co-op in, in it which it was a cartel. Yeah, it was a cartel basically, and but it was it was a separate cartel because it was the agency that organized who got which parts of Long Island and who got which customers and then enforced that, you know, you know, by being the mob, right. but also fundamentally existed to, to keep all the garbage taken away out of Long Island. And again, relatively, um, you know, char they, they, they had a much bigger margin. It wasn't a 2% margin. It was a 50% margin, but a lot of that went to the garbage men and to the garbage men's union, as opposed to the Gambino family who took their, you know, whatever 10% right. Was. Right. And it's, it's an anti-competitive measure yeah. because the main role is you can't poach other guys clients so that mm -hmm. if you're a garbage hauler and you make an arrangement uh, with this banner company, you just have them forever yeah. and no one else can come and pitch for their uh, business. And that, of course, is anti-capitalistic, but it had a nice sort of peaceful system. And if you messed with them, they would burn your trucks. But otherwise, uh, the, everybody in the system was reasonably happy with it. And, and again, it was it was basically how a lot of straight business was done in the 40s and 50s. I mean, in that era, that that was the great era of, of government corporatization. And, and, you know, GM gets this and Ford gets this and Chrysler gets this. And look at that. The car industry is all happy. And then the UAW gets its piece. And everything rolls along just fine until, of course, you know, people start buying Japanese cars because uh, American car customer service and quality have gone to hell. Right. And you even have uh, vestiges of that today with the uh, extreme political power of the uh, car dealership lobbies in various states. And so you have the whole thing where in Texas, that bastion of, uh, of freedom and, uh, and uh, economic wherewithal, if you uh, want to sell a Tesla car, they're pretty good at stopping you from doing that if you if, because Tesla's unwilling to go through the dealership structure. So in this instance, you often hear uh, the mob compared to 
uh, a group that brings a medieval power structure into contemporary America. Well, in this case, they were in the garbage uh, hauling industry in, in uh, around uh, greater New York. They were bringing a medieval guild system yeah. in, into the uh, structure. And the article talks about the extent to which the people in the political system would do favors for their nice mobster pals and uh, vice versa. But starting with the war on drugs, that all does a 180, and that happens to be the time when the street-level control of uh, drugs in places like uh, New York is shifting from the mob to African-American and Latino gangs. Yeah, and that goes hand-in-hand with also a much bigger government role in society because it follows, I mean, that's after the Great Society, so you have, you know, suddenly social workers on every block are reporting to the government you get a, and then they talk about the huge difference in police presence in Philadelphia it was it like increased by seventy percent from the the pre, uh, you know from from the uh from like from the forties to the eighties or whatever it was, and so there was you know a there's a bigger police presence. The police are less corrupt uh, now than they were, which <laughs> I, I suppose I believe. But um, good lord, <laughs> what does that say about then? Um, and then the uh, the other thing, of course, is that an individual cop has so much more ability to find out who you are. I mean, they've got a computer system that's networked not just necessarily to the city, but possibly to the whole state. They've got, you know, fingerprint uh, readers. They've got all kinds of stuff. And back in the day, the mob could say, you know, ah, my name's Louie. I'm from, I'm from Canaryville. Ask anybody. And, you know, the cops don't know one Italian guy from another Italian guy. And so they're like... Well, Louis, don't cross us again. Maybe they'll beat him up, but that's it. Yeah, and a fake ID. There's yeah. no system to check it against. Right, and, and you know, it's not impo- And it's just as easy to have a fake ID as it is to have a print shop. Back in those days, there's no holograms or or even lamination necessarily. And so, uh, what has changed then is that if you're a street level criminal today, you are living in a state of sort of constant desperation, as opposed to uh, you know the old days where you were kind of the king of the neighborhood. And uh, a lot of people in the uh, organized crime organizations before the advent of uh, the RICO laws uh, and before the sort of patronage of the political system was withdrawn, uh, a lot of these guys never saw the inside of a prison or they would be, you know, occasionally arrested on uh, lame offenses and then get off on appeal because there were all sorts of, you know, additional ways to jigger the uh, system. And now there's this sort of system where everybody has a warrant out on them and they're sort of in a constant state of having to move around. And because as soon as they get uh, stopped and frisked, uh, they're going to wind up in the system again. And also just the sheer number of things that are likely to get charged as a, as a crime these days are much greater. So if you're, you know, if you're in a scuffle in a bar in the 30s and 40s and you're running a game, you know that uh, if you're a player character, that that's it's just a scuffle in a bar and, you know, concussions were handed out and you broke a bunch of furniture and oh, well. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> whereas, whereas today, you know, the cops are on that right away and everybody's got criminal charges. And so uh, it's sort of, uh, if you're playing a realistic uh, game set in a crime milieu, the characters now have a lot less freedom of action. And it's been observed in other contexts that today being a street level uh drug runner is a terrible, terrible job. It's, it's worse than McDonald's. Yeah, it's not for, certainly a way for to, hours put in versus reward. Yeah. It's, it's not a way to leverage yourself into anything except, you know, maybe a coffin. And so the, the notion of there being kind of an upward mobility, there's a, 
a layer of very, in fact, it's sort of a uh, part of the, the Gilded Age economy is now operative in the drug world as well, where there's a very thin layer of people at the very top of that who are making all of the money and the uh, people who are taking the most uh, risks down at the bottom uh, street level are uh, basically interchangeable uh, cogs who are being uh, ground down uh, as surely as anybody in the regular proletariat. And more surely, actually, because they're, as you say, got bench warrants out against everything they can do, and they can be shot by the cops or shot by their competitors, which generally does not happen if you work for a real estate company. That's right. So how, how does this uh, affect our portrayal of modern crime in games and fiction? Does it mean that it's just uh, a lot less uh, fun and we should run our crime dramas in the uh, 40s and 50s in the uh, golden age of film noir and hard-boiledness? Well, I think that that's, I mean, that's part of what, if you look around uh, right now, I would be willing to bet that at the table, uh, virtually every criminal character is either in a fantasy world or is in the sepia past of one kind or another. I don't think a lot of people are saying we're going to run a game where we're all crack dealers or where we're all, I mean, no one says, I've just got a copy of Gangbusters, let's update it to modern day Chicago, you know, and, uh, you know, no one is running those kinds of games and whether that's because right. instead they're vampires right. yeah, they're and vampires. they have that, and they have that level of underground upward mobility because you're, you're a, a blood sucker. And so that takes a lot of those uh, crime drama tropes and uh, not only nerd tropes them, but then makes them viable in contemporary society. Because it's easier to stay off the, off the, off the grid if you can't have a photograph taken, for example. Right. So I, I, I don't think that there's a lot of people trying to play modern-day crime drama. Um, in Knights Black Agents, you may play a guy who's a criminal, and so you have all of your you know, potential uh, problems, but you've gone through the shadow world, so you've known a guy who can change your, uh, your, all your data or, or, or wipe you from the system, and all that is presumed to have happened before your character begins, because you begin as a playable character with only one heat uh, against you, and so, you know, the heat is caused by your actions in-game, which might include having a bar fight on, you know, CCTV and getting arrested by the cops, or it might not. I mean, that's, that's kind of up, up to you in the old-school way, because obviously there were, there were plenty of Capone soldiers who did, in fact, uh, do time uh, for one reason or another, but there was also a lot more that didn't. Right, and, and the sort of the Wild West nature of a, a gang war changes everything, mm -hmm. right? Is that once the incentives break down and people start shooting at each other, then even the political structure that is being paid off has to act and the uh, the honest elements of an otherwise corrupt system gain power within that system and are, are able to act. And those are the sort of interesting moments because you also don't want to play a game in which you are running a late stage garbage hauling <laughs> guild slash cartel and mostly everybody's going along with it. or it's you know it's not about arranging parking at the Fulton Street <laughs> That's fish right, market yeah. either. I mean I, I could see that maybe being a fun card game or board game where it's a space control or resource control and you've got the mobbed up uh, parking. There's certainly German board games with less interesting <laughs> themes. Uh, chrome. <laughs> I think a lot of it also is and you know not to go there but I'm going to go there that an awful lot of uh, role players are white and Right now, to the extent that there is a glamorized criminal lifestyle, it's gr in rap videos and African-American 
crime rings that are being glamorized. And I think a lot of white guys either don't want to play black guys anyway, or maybe should, or th- th- aren't familiar enough with the with the glamorization to be able to play the fun part of it. Maybe they've seen The Wire, but that is certainly not glamorizing Baltimore crime life. It's not glamorizing anything in Baltimore, even if it's a great you know sort of batch of data to have in your head if you're running a modern day game set in any city. Right. And I think if you do want to do a, a realistic modern crime thing again, drama system is probably the way to to do that because you can kind of control the the lethality level due to the way the game is structured and it's about the, you know, emotional relationships between the uh the people. And so you could do a game kind of based on that new show Empire, which yeah. is all about uh sort of a the growth of uh a, a hip hop uh, Empire, hence, hence the, hence name. the name. So, is there uh, any other little uh, quibbles or, or notes that you want? I guess the obvious sort of social point is that the uh, that we're not going to be the first people to make is that by foreclosing organized crime or the underground economy as a way for people to advance themselves, that that maintains uh, the existing underclass as an underclass, and it uh, uh, you know makes you question whether all of the effects of the war on crime that we currently take for granted because we fear the worst effect of wide-scale addiction if the war on uh, drugs were abandoned uh, you know we may be already pricing in things that are much more much worse than the alternative but that we're familiar with and that we accept as part of the status quo and also i mean not to be that guy but crack is different from liquor i mean we had literally thousands of years of human society to figure out how to handle liquor and We've only had, what, 40 years of human society to try and figure out how to handle crack? So if you go back and you look at, say, the gin riots in uh, London, when they first began to have cheap, uh, straight spirits available to the underclass, uh, it's much more similar to the crack business and, and the crack epidemic in America than it is to even prohibition in Chicago. Uh, it's, it's a much bigger deal. There, there's huge social uh, dislocations and side effects. So... While I think that uh, most of our audience are <laughs> has gone to college and therefore knows that uh, the Mary Jane is not quite uh, as depicted in Reefer Madness, I think that there is a difference between the bootlegging that was done by uh, my own uh, beloved Chicago mob and the crack running that is done by my current beloved Chicago mobs. And so you can't necessarily draw a one-to-one equation and say, well, if you were, you know, a bootlegger, and 40% of, and, and uh, you know, what, four in 40, so 90% of your family can go legit and there's no stigma and no problems and no backsplash. I think that that might not be the same percentage from having a, a crack ring that you're running um, uh, in, you know, the south side of Chicago now. Right. And now the, you know, as we alluded to earlier, the uh, legitimization process is that you start as a crack dealer and then your next level is you're a rapper, mm-hmm. right? That you leverage that into the... Uh, entertainment industry, which has traditionally been another way that marginalized groups get, uh, you know, a pass in order to move up up the ladder right. that would otherwise be uh, denied to them. And I guess that you know, the, we're not going to solve the drug war in a segment on a gaming podcast, but well, the, we the, will, but no one will listen. No one will. No listen. one listen. Well, the, but the the problem with it is that it's not. Uh, we we're used to dealing with problems that are. There's a good solution and a bad solution. We just have to determine which it is. And here we've got our choice of a bunch of terrible problems and which set of problems is is worse. And that's something that doesn't fit into a, any sort of debate-oriented uh, political discourse, which is why it's so hard to 
reverse the the trend, even though I think a lot more and more people are seeing the the downside of the current approach. But which uh, conversely makes it uh, all the more adaptable to horror games, and that's one of the yes, great indeed. insights of White Wolf is to say everything that's wrong with the world, especially when you're a, a young adolescent, is the fault of monsters, and uh, that if you can go out there, you can either become the monsters or you can struggle against the monsters. And so if you are looking and saying, what's different about the pro the, the Prohibition-era crime families and the modern-day crime families and, and crime syndicates, it's not that, you know, social conditions have changed or economics have changed or the degree of extra power available to the government has changed. No, it's the rise of a demon, a demon who hates assimilation. And so now you can present that as a as a as you know one demon or as a conspiracy of evil white guys a la every movie ever or however you want to do you can you one of the things that an intractable social problem does give you is a lot of hooks in for supernatural or conspiracy based storytelling which is why of course supernatural and conspiracy based storytelling flourish amongst uh, the serial underclass in America and everywhere else uh, yes and uh, you know bad times make for good horror which I think is is good a maxim as any to move on to our next segment The Northeast's most quixotically RPG-centric hobby retailer is partnering with Indie Press Revolution to bring small press and independent RPGs to PAX East. Offerings will include plenty of Pelgrane Press titles, in addition to many other games touted on this very podcast. Like Fiasco, Dungeon World, Monster Hearts, Microscope, and the proverbial many, many more. Also, a full range of traditional RPGs, including D&D 5th Edition, dice and accessories, including loose single miniatures, maps, and dungeon tiles. What makes Modern Myths owner Jim Crocker a retailer extraordinaire? Could it be his above and beyond efforts as a feng shui to play tester? Or the fact that I killed him in a colonial New England Call of Cthulhu game? It has to be those things and not his credentials as an impeccable purveyor of tabletop delights. On Twitter, he's at Modern Myths, plus Facebook backslash Modern Myths Comics, and his website, www.modern-myths.com. Find the Modern Myths booth across from Indie Games On Demand in the tabletop gaming area at PAX East. The bubbling of retorts and the retort of bubblers tell us that we have entered the wonderful, colorful, brightly lit, arcing electricity lab of fun with science. And I'm not sure that we've actually ever opened the fun with science lab before, but we're opening it. We, we have had a, a one or two fun with science. We have? Okay. So uh, we're opening it again then. Uh, and today, fun with science, we'll be drilling weird holes in our head with lasers and thoughts and thoughts of lasers, uh, and specifically what we see uh, when we don't see anything. Robin, tell us what kind of fun we're having with science today. So the subtitle of this segment is The Categorical Imperative Tastes Like Veal. I thought we'd look at hallucinations and synesthesia. 
uh, which if I think I successfully uh, pronounced if I wasn't hallucinating that. I, I was recently reading Oliver Sacks' book uh, entitled, appropriately enough, Hallucinations, and it covers all of the various optical and other sensory uh, ways in which people can uh, start to perceive things that are not objectively there due to uh, various mostly neurological conditions. So basically, he tackles everything but schizophrenia, which for some reason is in a different category, even though I think we're, uh, which I, in 20 years, I don't think that distinction is going to be particularly valid because I think it's turning out to be more and more a, uh, it's a series of different genetic disorders. And I don't know why it's different that your chemistry is affecting your brain rather than the structure of your brain is affecting your brain. But anyway, um, so this is less about delusions that are, you're part of a a delusional system where you uh, hear voices and believe them to be real, or you uh, see something and think it's real, but that your optical processing apparatus is giving you false information that you mostly know to be false. And this can crop up, uh, for example, if you lose part of your visual field, your brain will start to fill things in. And it can be uh, anything ranging from like a uh, relatively realistic thing where we'll fill in what it assumes to be the rest of the bench, even though there's no rest of the bench in that field of your obscured vision. Or you can get really weird things where you start to see uh, musical notes, which happens a lot to people who are involved in music, or you can have little Mickey Mouses repeating themselves across your visual field, like a sort of a screensaver, uh, to more elaborate things where you think that you are um, interacting with people who you uh, know to be imaginary. And a lot of the time people are not only aware of these as hallucinations, but uh, once they adjust to it are, are not particularly disturbed by them emotionally, even though physically it's obviously a big obstacle if you're seeing things that, mm-hmm. that aren't there. And there are cases where the figures become ominous, where there's little people crawling across your bed trying to uh, get at you. But it's a really rich and interesting field, and one in which the way that we present hallucinations in games and fiction, I think, is um, doesn't fully draw on the uh, range of this experience. And in part, I think that's because in fiction in particular, you want everything that happens to mean something, whereas the thing about a lot of these uh, hallucinatory effects is that they are weird and random and don't uh, relate to your emotional state, particularly they're just sort of a trick of the brain. So you're, uh, you know, seeing a bunch of uh, Mickey Mouse figures uh, filling your your visual field. That's not because that tells you something about your emotional journey as a person or or whatever. That it's just a random glitch in your neurological system. Yeah, the um, I I would say that if you are running any kind of game that involves mental state, whether it's you know uh, a Cthulhu game or whatever. Go ahead and, you know, read uh, Oliver Sacks, uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a, a Hat, and Anthropologist on Mars, or the other two that are sort of immediately relevant in terms of the ways that brains can work in other ways than we normally have them work. And there's all manner of things that would seem to be sort of debilitating, but that you can get workarounds for, or that create workarounds that cause their own side effects, but are still better than nothing. And he sort of you know, spans the globe or spans the, uh, the, 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 the literature with all manner of different possibilities. Uh, I think that one of the things that is interesting to me and has always been interesting to me is just the notion that perception and reality 
are not the same. And I hope that I'm not the first person to tell you this. Um, <laughs> perhaps Plato was the first person to tell you this, but he was wrong, but he was right about Great this. Great podcast Plato had, by the way. Yes, he did. He, 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 Plato and Aristotle talk about stuff. It was really good. Sadly, not available on RSS. Anyway, and once you know that that is true in, intellectually, because you never know it's true, really, that's what makes it so weird, um, you can play a lot of games with it in terms of uh, the way you present a monster, the way you present anything, uh, but usually a monster or a horror thing, in, uh, in, a, in a game setting. And also, it has a lot of, uh, of use in the occult, obviously, because so much magic, as is practiced in the real world, is about altering things that you perceive. You know, I've seen a demon, I've seen the spirit of Apollonius of Tiana, I've seen this, I've seen that, but once you establish that you can override actuality with perception, that opens up a bunch of different questions among them. Well, if a perceived demon can still curse you, was it a real demon? I mean, where where's the differential? And if you can, you know, in in uh, inspire this same effect in someone else with perhaps a a uh, a set of um, uh, of rotes and whatnot, of, or rotes and drugs, because of course, obviously, witches would slather themselves with all manner of exciting potions before having their esbits. Um, you have another batch of possibilities that the creature just doesn't live in our three-dimensional meat space, but lives in the realm of perception, which, as it turns out, is where we all spend all of our lives anyway. And so boundary lines like between Lovecraft's dreamlands and his uh, conventional fiction or, or his conventional horror fiction become even less important because one, not only is Cthulhu, for example, constantly dreaming, which one assumes would have an effect on the dreamlands, but also, so much of Lovecraft's horror fiction is about, only I saw this, or only I understand this, and there's no proof whatsoever, and you have to trust and believe me, even though I'm crazy, and, you know, writing this from, you know, my, the place where I'm about to kill myself, uh, type uh, story. And so the, those boundaries, slipping over any one of them, creates so many possibilities for story, and so many possibilities for how to, how to sort of consider in your own head the, the the monster or the demon or the big bad in your own game that uh, there's just no there, there's no downside to it and the more you can deal with it and the more you can introduce it a lot of that is dependent on the game's theme you know if you're running a madness dossier game it's expected that there's going to be constant hallucinations that aren't real in an Ashen Stars game you might have to make it more you know evil psionic brains or the lost Moholar weapon or something that does that to you but there's something of an expectation to it whereas in a more uh, straightforward game uh, with, with with no overt uh, supernaturality traveler or something, um, maybe that is sort of out of court. Or in a game where, uh, like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, where if there is a any sort of alteration in your status, that is a immediately game gamified attack, and you're going to be immune to it at such and such a level, and this, that, and the other thing. So that it's ironically even in that high fantasy world, casting illusion is more mechanical than an illusion is maybe in another uh, in a, in another sort of a game, and certainly in a in a completely realistic world, the multiplicity of different hallucinatory effects is, as I said before, is beyond what we typically portray. So that uh, you could have a character in your hard boiled uh, detective series who uh, sees a sort of a spectral figure in uh, her field of vision all the time, knows it isn't real, but also can't get rid of it. And so that shapes her uh, psychology or, uh, you know, that the 
a set of uh, particular hallucinations that accompanies a near-death experience, which interestingly happens to correspond to particular means of near-death, right? It's associated with a super sudden drop in blood pressure. So if that's how you nearly died, that's why you see that set of very similar, albeit somewhat culturally determined hallucinations while while you're out. Um, so you can bring those into play and have a sort of a sense of the unreal or the surreal or the dreamlike in a realistic world, just the way that there are people out there today suffering all of these things that make their worlds seem fantastical. And one of the ones I want to get to was synesthesia, uh, which is the relatively common uh, sensory hallucination where you sort of mix up what different senses are so that uh, you can associate uh, flavors with abstract concepts or that the touch of a surface will uh, have a, a sort of a musical cue for you. And that's something that you could add to a character as a way of sort of chrome for them being uh, intuitive in a, in a setting so that if you are, you know, investigating the old library and you pick up a book and the book that uh, feels like it's burning your fingers is the one that you want to have someone else open <laughs> and yeah. read to you. Yeah. The, um, uh, and of course that the, the great example in, in the modern uh, uh, sphere is Rust Cole in True Detective, who's a synesthetic. And that is a way to convey both his intuition, but also to imply that he's not necessarily a reliable narrator. And you can you can do both of those things. Right. And he experiences a wider range of, you know, you see his hallucinatory effects and his, you know, epiphany at the end uh, is, uh, you know, uh, hallucinatory as well. And so you periodically see all of these. Uh, and I think that's probably the one of the best uh, versions of showing uh, hallucinations in uh, media, because although it is very, very tightly tied into his emotional journey, it's also, I think, somewhat more depicted as kind of also an external state and a result of a brain injury as well. So is there uh, anything else you want to uh, cover about hallucinations before we move on? One of the things that I think is uh, connected, I mean, a lot of uh, synesthesia, like you were mentioning, is, has got a an olfactory component, right? You you pick up a book and you smell or taste something, or you hear, a, the a, a, you, know, you read Kant and it tastes like veal, although if when I read Kant, it doesn't taste like veal. Um and you can play an awful lot with uh, with smells. I mean, Crowley, of course, provides uh, perfume uh, parallels to all of the various... Um, Crowley and the rest of the Golden Dawn provide perfume parallels to all the various uh, Hebrew letters and zodiac symbols and decans and whatnot. So you can have you can have that as a straightforward magical language. Uh, I remember the the final Quatermass movie where the the aliens communicate through smell, and so a, a smell acts as a code, which Again, to the extent, let's say that you've deduced the smell code of the aliens, how is that different from hallucinating that there's an alien smell code? There is no, there's, there's no objective proof. And in the game, you know, that's why you have a 40% chance of detect alien, because maybe you're hallucinating, maybe you're not hallucinating. That, that, you can provide that as a, as a methodology of, of explaining it. There's a lot of, really great uh, things that show up in, in Oliver Sacks and other places like that. Uh, I don't necessarily know if things like uh, Capgras syndrome would fall under our, our discussion here, but the notion that, that, that someone around you is, uh, is actually an imposter or a duplicate, I mean, that's a delusion. To what is, is that an illusion? Is it the thing where you, where you look at them and you're like, oh, uh, like that great line in Body Snatchers where she says, 
I think something's wrong with my uncle. I don't think he's my uncle. And he says, well, what? And she says, I looked at the back of his neck, and he always has a mole on the back of his neck. And the guy says, well, does he have the mole? And she says, oh, yes. <laughs> it's exactly as I remember it. And that, of course, in, in, a, in a Jack Finney novel, you know, it's going to be something something scary. But you can imagine an NPC saying that, and the players are like, okay, is this guy nuts? We know that there are body snatchers or, or some other kind of demon monster. What, is, what does this say? And the way that works in real life is that you, uh, your brain sustains damage to the part of the structure that identifies and remembers your emotional connections to people. So mm-hmm. once you lose that, you see someone who looks like the person you remember, but you have lost, physically lost, the cells, uh, the structure on which you uh, previously stored your emotional connection to them. You remember having had a com- emotional connection to someone who looks like that, but when you look at that person, those feelings that you expect to have are not evoked because they're not there. There's sectors on the driver missing, and that's what creates this. Um, so it's um, uh, we're used to thinking. Uh, so it's not a psychological delusion; it's a, a inability for the uh, your neurological system to access one of its components. And so that's what's so terrifying about it is that uh, you know if it was sort of a classical delusion in the psychoanalytic sense that there is would be some sort of prospect of, you know, you're being able to undergo talk therapy and overcome that delusion. But it's a physical damage that you, one of your organs has sustained that is creating this emotional perceptual effect, uh, which is, you know, something that we don't like to come to terms with and is, you know, really uh, in its implications uh, uh, terrifying which is why, you know, my uh, alternate title for the man who mistook his wife for a hat is, oh, my God, I've got a neurological disorder. <laughs> uh, hallucinations is not quite so bad because you know you're not, you know, currently seeing a uh, string of uh, fancy Gilded Age ladies uh, walking down the hallway. But, uh, you know, just the, the thought of how contingent and meat-based our consciousness is is uh, one that we generally prefer to avoid. Yes, and I think that... Uh... We could uh, start talking about delusions as opposed to illusions uh, for oh so very long, but I think we will provide our listeners with the perception that we've stopped and moved into another hut instead. Virgil's purring as he looks at a stack of new arrivals in his precious library tells us that we're once more investigating the world of Ken's bookshelf. And in this case, we're looking at the book haul that you, Ken, uh, snagged in uh, another one of your uh, annual book pilgrimages, this one to uh, San Francisco, which is linked to your annual trip to Dundracon. Uh, Is there anything else you want to Tell us about uh, being a book hound of San Francisco before we start uh, going through the individual titles and vicariously uh, enjoying your stack of plunder. Even though San Francisco is not what it once was, it what it once was was so bookstore rich that even now it is considerably more bookstore rich than most other cities, and certainly than most other cities its size. Uh, San Francisco is not actually a very big city, um, and I uh, hit both three bookstores in San Francisco, all of which were new to me, and then I hit Moe's Books in Berkeley, which is a four-story cathedral of used books uh, with some new books, 
um, in uh, very similar to Powell's. If you're if you know either the Powell's in Chicago or the Powell's in Portland, it has a, a similar vibe to, to Powell's. And, and so I hit Moe's in Berkeley, which I hadn't hit for years, as well as hitting uh, Fields Bookshop at the uh, Pantheacon dealers booth, where they uh, manifest on our current reality. Uh, and um, my perception and their perception overlap. Is there a, a smell of bibliomania that uh, arises other than the smell of old paper? Um, in San Francisco, the smell of bibliomania is, um, is is very much the smell of some kind of delicious and exotic sausage cooking because there's usually a great uh, ethnic restaurant right around the corner from whatever uh, bookstore you're going into. So there is definitely the old paper smell of a proper used bookshop, but usually there's some kind of really exotic spiced meat smell, uh, even in uh, vegan San Francisco that I often associate with going book hounding in San Francisco. And of course, Pantheacon is full of incense and hippies. So it smells like that. So uh, to move on to the actual uh, treasures, the first two items on the list are uh, previously, I guess, uh, unpublished works by uh, one of my favorite writers, William Hope Hodgson. So we're talking about, the Haunted Pampero, Unpublished Mysteries and Fantasies, uh, and Terrors of the Sea, Unpublished Fantasies, uh, William Hope Hodgson, both from Borderlands Books. So I take it from the fact that there are two books that someone has uncovered a uh, trove of uh, stuff from William Hope Hodgson's rejection pile. Sam Moskowitz, who is, I guess, a big Hodgson scholar, as well as being fairly well-known uh, amongst uh, uh, connoisseurs of science fiction anthologies got a hold of, I think, all of Hodgson's papers, and he has been sorting through them and tracing down not just not old manuscripts, but acceptance letters from magazines that published Hodgson after he died. So when they say unpublished mysteries and fantasies, they mostly mean unpublished while he was alive. Right. And what happened was after his death uh, in World War One by artillery shell. Um, which is not, I, I guess in World War One it's the way to die, but it still seems pretty terrible. Um, so William Hope Hodgson dies, and his widow then goes, because she has been talking to Hope, as she called him, uh, all, all, all along about his career, and so she starts submitting his unpublished stories, the stuff that he had in his, in his desk or that he was going to submit after he got back from the war, and says, now that uh, Hope is dead, there's no more William Hope Hodgson stories. Maybe you'd like to publish this one. And she really sort of built Hodgson's career up from where it was when he died, which was, I don't say complete obscurity, but mostly obscurity. And she worked very closely with a literary critic who was a huge Hodgson fan. She got all of his work uh, in a uniform series of hardback novel of, of hardbacks. Uh, uh, in, in, I think, the 20s at some point. And then, sadly, she died, and Hodgson's sister took over the job, and she sort of made a hash of everything and wouldn't sign rights agreements because she was worried that she would go to jail if she signed it wrong. Although Moskowitz's theory is that she subconsciously resented Hodgson because when she really cared about something, like getting a parsonage built in the remote Welsh town where she lived, she got it done. So Moskowitz's theory is that the sister sort of deliberately steps on Hodgson's reputation. And so the uh, both uh, Haunted Pampero and Terrors of the Sea have very long bibliographic essays on Hodgson's career by Moskowitz. And, of course, both of them have lots of great Hodgson material that um, even fairly completist Hodgson collectors might not have run across. I hadn't been familiar with them, although, admittedly, if I were any kind of alpha Hodgson 
uh, collector, I'm sure I would have known about this series uh, when it came out in the 80s. So. Uh, so next up we have Shakespeare and the Goddess of Complete Being by Ted Hughes. I assume this is the uh, Ted Hughes who is... Uh, Famous for uh, his marriage to Sylvia Plath. And his poetry. And being a, a poetess in his own right. Mm -hmm. Yes, th this is indeed that uh, Ted Hughes. And this book is his belief, or at least his uh, very closely argued theory, I think he probably actually believes it, that certainly after Shakespeare start, he writes the sonnets, he writes The Rape of Lucrece, and he writes Adonis and Venus, Venus and Adonis, that he begins to cast all of his plays in a deliberately mythic paradigm, uh, and the myths being the myth of the rape of Lucrece and the myth of uh, Venus and Adonis, and that you can read all of his later plays back into these uh, basically goddess uh, ritual uh, formats, and of course, once someone says, goddess ritual format Shakespeare play, <laughs> I'm right there. Uh, this book was impossible to find forever. You, you would go on Amazon and be like 150 bucks. And you couldn't get it, and you couldn't get it, and you couldn't get it. And I think it got republished a little while ago, but this is the original edition, which I found on the shelf, I think, at uh, Aardvark Books. It may have been Aardvark that I found Shakespeare and the Goddess of Complete Being, although this might also be a mode. So the reprint brought the original the reprint, used copy it, it down in print. brought it out, of, or perhaps I, it was just vouchsafed to me. I think in many cases, the master only appears when the pupil is ready, and so perhaps I had to do a lot of other background Shakespeare goddess ritual reading before I got to this, but this is the real deal. It's very thick. Uh, Hughes is obviously, you know, of that great British tradition of, you know, public school and then Oxford and, or Cambridge or wherever the hell he went. So he is very much a, a close reader and a, uh, and a, and a big fan of both the classics and of Shakespeare and the poet's desire to make things true, even if they aren't that we recognize in, uh, the wonderful Robert Graves. I suspect is going to come through with uh, Ted Hughes in spades here. So I really look forward to that. Right. So there's a, the distinction between the interpretation that says these can be read as, mm -hmm. and these were undoubtedly intended to be read yes. as, mm -hmm. uh, is going to be the, the big uh, turning point in that book. Yep. Speaking of things that uh, there are many turning points and controversies around, we have The Crown, a tale of Sir Gawain in King Arthur's court by Heinrich Van dem Turlen. Uh, what is up with that? This is the less well-known German Arthurian cycle. Everyone knows, obviously, the English Arthurian cycle with your morts and such. And most people know the French Arthurian cycle with uh, the Chrétien de Troyes and the Comte de Graal and, and things like this. There are also German Arthurian cycles. Perhaps the best well-known is Parsifal by our buddy Wolfram von Eschenbach. But this one is another one. It's The Crown, or Die Krone, by uh, Heinrich von den Turlen. He wrote it in the early 13th century. It's a great big long poem in which he sort of sticks all kinds of bits of uh, Celtic lore into a German context and into the career of Sir Gawain. And it is the only Arthurian poem in which Gawain achieves the grail instead of Percival or Galahad. Uh, it's got a lot of, you know, weird elements that he stuck in. Uh, there's magicians, there's shapeshifters, there's all manner of fun things that are not traditionally part of the Arthurian corpus. Um, uh, severed heads, lots of those. Um, and it is generally not available in English, and I found an English version of it in, uh, that, this one was, was in Aardvark, and I thought, well, there you go, a, a German, uh, Arthurian thing. That will undoubtedly come in handy next time I 
want to do something with Teutonic Knights or the Ananerba or Parsifal or the German Arthurian sagas, which tie into Adel of the Hunt in a kind of interesting way that we should probably discuss at a different uh, segment of a different hunt. Um, next up is some CanCon. We have CanCon. Uh, Real Canadian Pirates, Buccaneers and Rogues of the North by Jordi Telfer. And I got this not only because I get pirate books, but also because it was so very Canadian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the real Canadian, um, uh, <laughs> the, the real Canadian pirates is if I made up a pirate book about Canada, it would be called this. Yes. So I'm sure the original title was We Have Pirates Too. We Have Pirates Too. Well, that's the back cover is basically yeah. while piracy and privateering in the old world, the Caribbean were set against a backdrop of personal gain and individual glory. Similar exploits in Canadian waters were driven by war politics and the cultural divide. So it's like not only are our, do we have Canadian pirates, but they're Canadian pirates. You can smell the grant proposal on that. That's cover right. They want copy. nothing but uh, peace, order, good government, and doubloons. So is it mostly <laughs> so, about stealing furs? It, uh, there, there are, I think, um, uh, pirates in the Thousand Islands and in the um, uh, in the St. Lawrence, who I assume are stealing furs. But the, they say Black Bart, Bartholomew Roberts, is a uh, is a Canadian pirate because he operated out of Newfoundland. So whatever. There's uh, a lot of other uh, pirates. Uh, there's pirates in uh, New Brunswick who hijack American ships, and then they talk about privateers and smugglers in the War of 1812 and in the Civil War who are operating out of Canada and count them. But Black Bart is, I think, your most fav famous Canadian pirate in, in the book. And then there's other ones uh, who I'd never even heard of, so I'm very excited by Gunpowder Gertie, the pirate queen of the Kootenays. I think that she <laughs> surely will pay me vast dividends yes, of fun. It's got to be a player character. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think that there's probably no shortage of, of good good material here. And as I say, I'm, I collect pirate books anyway, but when you see a book called Real Canadian Pirates and you have Robin Laws as a beloved podcast fellow, you know that you must own this, and indeed I must. Uh, next up is Black Fire, the true story of the original Tom Sawyer. And of the mysterious fires that baptized Gold Rush era San Francisco by Robert Graysmith. Yes, uh, Robert Graysmith, you may recall, is the author of Zodiac, as well as other true crime books that are not Zodiac, but still are pretty good. Um, and this one is a true crime book in that the mysterious fires are caused by a mysterious arsonist known as the Light Keeper. And he was hunted down by, among others, a young Tom Sawyer, who uh, eventually became sort of a local celebrity in San Francisco based on his exploits as a fireman and then his exploits saving a bunch of people from a shipwreck. And so when... So by being uh, the real Tom Sawyer, it doesn't mean he's the basis of Mark Twain's book, but was just a guy really named Tom Sawyer? He was really named Tom Sawyer. He was really friends with Mark Twain. Okay. And Graysmith makes the argument that it was meeting the real Tom Sawyer in a steam bath in San Francisco that made Mark Twain give up on his notion of just writing a book about a fireman, which was what his, his book was going to be, or a fire girl, actually, and decided to turn Tom Sawyer into sort of this all-American hero that he was in, uh, in, in the story Tom Sawyer. And apparently some elements of Tom Sawyer's rambunctious youth make it into Tom Sawyer, and I suspect Robert Graysmith is happier to imply than he is able to prove, but since the real Tom Sawyer opened up a bar called the original Tom Sawyer's Bar, uh, this tradition goes all the way back to the real Tom Sawyer. And certainly, one can imagine 
Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer also late in life opening up a bar called the original Tom Sawyer. So I think that there's a lot in it. And then also, ho, serial arsonist in 1849 to 1851 uh, San Francisco with vigilantes and Irish criminals and uh, uh, super powerful boxers who go around punching people. There's there's lots of, of joy in this just, you know, on the on the merits, even leaving Tom Sawyer out of it. But as I say, you know, when you've got a, a, a milieu to introduce people into, give them something they can hook onto, and Tom Sawyer is, is that for this, I think. Back on a nautical note, I guess there's sort of a sub-theme going on here, Storm and Conquest, The Clash of Empires in the Eastern Seas, 1809, by Stephen Taylor. Yeah, this is about the, um, there was apparently a giant typhoon or something in Mauritius in 1809 uh, that uh, knocked out the British East India Company's fleet, pretty much. And so there was a huge attempt by the British to stop uh, the French from basically undoing all the good work that the British had done in India once the, uh, uh, the, the East India Company's fleet is gone. And they were worried that Napoleon was going to try and reverse the verdict of Trafalgar, and they were going to sail up and take over India from Mauritius. And this is the great war for Mauritius that was uh, carried out by the British Navy uh, back in uh, 1809 to, I guess, 1811 is when they started it, or when they finished it out. But it's a it, it's a big, huge sea duel in the Indian Ocean, which is a great place for big, huge sea duels. And there's not a lot of naval history pays attention to the Indian Ocean, which is weird, given how vi- vitally important it, the Indian Ocean has been. But even uh, stuff like Afonso de Albuquerque aren't as well known as they ought to be. And certainly the Mauritius campaign was not even known to me, and I felt that that lacuna meant that I should get the book. So there's not an SPI uh, hex, uh, hex and Chit board game for that one? I don't think there is. I don't think there is an SPI Mauritius uh, campaign board game. Although, um, if anyone can crack the code of doing a good uh, naval space control war game in this modern day, uh, this would make a good one, I suspect. Next up is Edward Lansdale's Cold War by Jonathan Nichelle. Yeah, this is about, I think we've talked about Edward Lansdale in a previous uh, Tradecraft Hut. But he was the guy that uh, developed a fake vampire campaign in the Philippines, uh, helped out in Malaya with psychological war. Was a oh, big, right, yes. I think we yes. talked about him in the context of uh, uh, Dennis Wheatley. And possibly also in the context of the um, fake Satanists in the IRA oh, uh, right, in the right. Troubles. Yeah. So anyway, he was a former ad executive who took his uh, persuading people powers to work for the CIA. He may have been the model for The Quiet American in uh, the Graham Greene's uh, novel of the same name. And he was, you know, sort of had this Cold War Superman legend of the guy who would go in and using the power of Madison Avenue fix stuff for you. Um, among his triumphs was getting uh, Ngo Dinh Diem to become uh, president of South Vietnam, which may be seen as a <laughs> as, as a double-edged triumph. But uh, it's sort of a the, the notion that this was what uh, people like Kennedy and Eisenhower really wanted to believe was that you could send one guy or one small team of Americans in and change stuff without a giant expensive deployment of troops. That would be convenient. That would be convenient. And Lansdale, of course, because he has fake vampires and because he's all about perception and reality and advertising, he makes a terrific NPC or a terrific character model. It's it's Don Draper, super spy. Exactly, for for Knight's Black Agents. And uh, I have wanted to uh, read this specific book for some time, and I found it in San Francisco. I forget which store that was in, but I did found it, and oh my god, uh, how happy was I. So, I knocked two books off my Amazon wish list 
just with this trip alone. Uh, next up, Mammy Pleasant by Helen Holdredge. This is a, there is a later biography of uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant, as we call her now that we are no longer calling black women Mammy. But uh, she was a entrepreneur, possibly a voodoo queen uh, in San Francisco. Again, right around the, the, the turn of the century, she'd spent a great deal of time. One of her husbands was close to Marie Laveau's family, and she may have been in, initiated or, or worked with Marie Laveau when she lived in New Orleans. Either way, she goes to San Francisco and sets up shop and uh, provides, uh, I think, high-end beauty and spa treatments. She's able to pass as white, although one of the great things about Mary Ellen Pleasant is that after the um, uh, Civil War, she changes her uh, racial classification in the census to black, uh, to a great deal of um, uh, consternation amongst her white uh, uh, clientele. And then she was also uh, a very early civil rights activist. She didn't believe that she should sit on the back of the bus or the streetcar, I guess it was, in San Francisco either. And so she sued um, uh, the streetcar companies and wound up uh, getting uh, segregation outlawed in San Francisco. So good for her. And then she also had a giant uh, fight with uh, Senator William Sharon, um, who is quite a character in his own right, but she's she's quite a person. Um, so yet another figure who crosses the streams between political activism and uh, the occult. And the occult, yes, exactly. Uh, she's uh, uh, she. I mean, she she just you know anything that you think you've made up about uh, Mary Ellen Pleasant is probably true. Uh, the uh, trees that were around her house are the smallest national, uh, the smallest park in California. They're Mary Ellen Pleasant Park. Now, um, she also worked on the Underground Railroad, sneaking people to freedom uh, back in the day. So wow. she she was um, she was quite a character, and uh, even a early 1950s biography that is going to be playing up the uh, lurid uh, elements of her uh, history will make good game material while also adding to my collection of Mammy Pleasant books or Mary Ellen Pleasant books. So I'm I was happy to get that. Next up, Forgotten Kingdoms in Sumatra by F. M. Schnitger. And, you know, if you've got a book called Forgotten Kingdoms of Sumatra, at this late stage, I should hardly have to explain yes. why I bought it. <laughs> but it turns out it's like the only book about, uh, in English, about um, uh, uh, ancient Sumatra, and it contains, because there's so little known about uh, the, the, the empires and whatnot in Sumatra, it also contains lots of stuff about Sumatran magic and, and weird Sumatran practices and anything that this guy Schnitger, I guess, thought would fill a book. So it's sort of a it's sort of Sumatra, the RPG background. It was, I think, originally written in the 30s, I want to say. Um, something like that. Uh, but this is a, a latter-day translation thereof. And it was, um, uh, it's great fun, certainly. Next up, Neverland, J.M. Barry, The Du Mauriers, and the Dark Side of Peter Pan by, uh, and uh, this may be the best-named author in this list, Piers Dudgeon. Yes, if you're named Piers Dudgeon, you... You owe it to the world to write books and get your name out there. Um, Dudgeon's theory, I, I should say, <laughs> I should maybe say guess. Yes. Uh, does, is, does this book inspire Dudgeon? Du well, I, I don't think it inspires Dudgeon in me. Even very generous reviewers eventually have to point out that there is literally no proof of anything that Dudgeon says. <laughs> but the argument is... Aside from that... That J.M. Barry taught himself hypnosis by association with uh, with George Dumarier. I think it's George Dumarier. The guy wrote Trilby. 
and having read Trilby, taught himself hypnosis. And Trilby, of course, is the basis of Svengali, hence the Svengali, yes. uh, hypnosis connection. And so he in- inserts himself into the life of Sylvia Dumoyer, uh, whose husband is not a Dumoyer and is therefore irrelevant to us, and was certainly irrelevant to J.M. Barry, and uses his, tr- his Svengali-like powers to alienate her affections and take over the lives of her five beautiful boy children who are sort of the models of the Lost Boys or the models, I guess, of the Darling family in Peter Pan. And sure enough, three of those children came to very bad ends, uh, suicides and such, and there are, are accusations of improper activity. And then when their parents died, he managed to get uh, custody of them, which is probably uh, also terrible. And then Rebecca Dumoyer, not Rebecca Dumoyer, D- Daphne Dumoyer, who famously wrote Rebecca, becomes part of this little uh, connection because Barry allegedly taught her father to use Svengali power to lure her into another improper parental uh, daughter relationship. And that is why her books are all haunted by this spectral past. Um, Dudgeon basically is doing a lot of doesn't uh, Trilby and Peter Pan and Rebecca have a lot in common? Don't the productions of all these writers tie into a lot of similar themes? Given the weird life story that indisputably wraps around J.M. Barry and Sylvia Dumoyer and her kids, isn't there something else going on, and can't we explain it by the simple assumption that J.M. Barry becomes a five-foot-tall Svengali and uh, masterminding his way through the Dumoyer family, who he picks apparently at random, although the Dumoyers have their own occult connections as well that I suspect uh, Dudgeon will drag in uh, by the hair kicking and screaming. But anyway, it looks like it's a terrific uh, uh, potboiler of lurid gossip, and I certainly um, will be able to mine it for anything I plan to do with uh, sort of that 1890s, 1910s, 1920s uh, social set, artistic set, um, and uh, Svengaliism, I suppose. On a less hypnotic note, we have The Search for Lost America, The Mysteries of the Stone Ruins by Salvatore Michael Trento. Uh, I'm not going to hazard a guess whether this is real archaeology or craziness, so you're going to tell me. It is craziness. It's all about um, the various uh, hinges and stone piles. There's a map in the... There's a lot of maps, actually. There's a map in the frontispiece about all the mysterious stone ruins that we don't know anything about, um, including, you know, things that are obvious forgeries, like the Hevener runestone. And uh, it goes back and forth. There's lots of... Everything you want to have to provide a thin justification for a Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu scenario set anywhere in America, you have it right here in the lovely Search for Lost America, because there's going to be a stone ruin somewhere that you can summon Yogg-Sothoth at. Well, no um, one likes a thick justification. No one likes a thick... It, it wastes your valuable time. But this is all about, um, you know, how primordial Celts came across America and uh, Phoenicians and such. Uh, very much like America B.C. by Barry Fell, which I... I actually think is the superior book in this genre, so this is sort of a backstop, uh, but it, it's a backstop with a lot of very uh, lovely maps and site plans and other things that will come in handy. So certainly if you feel that Megalus, it's unfair that they're restricted just to uh, the British Isles and the Mediterranean coast, Western Mediterranean coast, here's your chance to expand them to the Holy Republic and have lots and lots of Megaliths in proper places like Minnesota. Um, and here's something that looks like it came in uh, under the wire too late after your upcoming uh, Ken Writes About Stuff. Uh, the Goetia, The Lesser Key 
of Solomon the King, translated by Samuel Liddell. Uh, we're going to do a segment on the Goetia. So uh, what, uh, briefly, do you want to tease here? Uh, the, this did, in fact, come in too late. This is the Crowley version of the Goetia with his edits, and then with the edits of a Crowleyan uh, added to those. It's illustrated with the demons from uh, Colin de Plancy's Dictionnaire Infernal, so it has lovely demon illustrations that are not everywhere. And there is a fairly important Crowley essay uh, called The Preliminary Definition of Magic, or The, the Initiated Interpretation of Ceremonial Magic, that is, um, uh, that is uh, a, a Crowley essay that's, that's fairly crucial for understanding what Crowley thought he was doing. And so, and then, uh, for the beginner, the Goetia is? The Goetia is one of the magic arts that sort of evolved in the Renaissance, and the specific role of the Goetia is to summon demons. It's just about summoning demons. Um, it comes from the Greek word uh, goes, uh, meaning sorcerer. Go get a or demon. Ga guy who is different from a magus, right? A magus is a, a magician. A goes is a sorcerer. And so we don't like the goetes. And lots of people would be accused of Goetia, and they would say, no, no, I'm a Magus. I'm not a Goetis. <laughs> and uh, so the, uh, the the Goetia is, in its traditional form, a list of 72 demons. It gives their symbols. It says what they look like when you summon them up and gives, you know, handy guides for summoning them up. So good for you, Goetia. And then this, of course, as I say, is full of delicious Crowley nonsense uh, larded onto it. So it's uh, that's why I got it, because as I mentioned, I already have, I think, two or three Goetias, and there's a Goetia online. Uh, edited by Joseph Peterson, that's perfectly good. But uh, this Goetia has lovely um, Fr French Empire illustrations of demons, and it has Crowley footnotes. So those alone make it worth the owning. To the Goetia, we shall uh, return in a future episode. Uh, and to go into something we've discussed in a past episode... Enochian Vision Magic, that's with a K, people, an introduction and practical guide to the magic, also with a K, of Dr. John D. and Edward Kelly by Lon Milo Duquette. And before you tell me what this is, is the middle name listing of an author an, in, uh, another craziness indicator? I think it is reliable. Um, it's less reliable with female authors because a lot of times female authors want people who knew them under their uh, non-married name and people who know them under their married right, name. Both the to be the able to maiden name is them. not the same as your your middle name in right, terms yeah. of craziness signaling. I think I think middle names are are good. Spurious uh, doctorates are another good one, or even non-spurious doctorates that you're simply not using when you're writing your book. Lots of PhDs out there writing crazy books. Um, I I don't know that the middle name is necessarily a guarantee, but it does show up an awful lot now that I think about it. it it's worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Lon Milo, however, is actually uh, the, the GM's friend, he is a great systematizer of the Golden Dawn, systematizer of D, um, believes that everyone should be able to understand this stuff, and has written a whole ton of books that basically very, very simply lay out, this is what this is, this is what this is, this is what this is. I used it, uh, I used one of his books for GURPS Cabal, and, uh, it was very, very helpful, so I keep an eye out for Duquette anyway. This is the first of the three books that I managed to get at Fields, and this is, very straightforwardly, you know, the simple, here's what's going on with John D, and uh, here's what you can do with it today if you're a modern-day magician who doesn't necessarily want to involve yourself with convicted forgers or wife-swapping. Right, and uh, obsidian mirror not included. Obsidian mirror not included. You can use probably household mirrors you'd find around the house. Uh, but Duquette is very 
very accessible. He, his scholarship is certainly no worse than anyone else's and is probably better than most people's in terms of just saying what the thing said. As a modern-day Golden Dawn guy, he's going to be reading a lot of uh, the, the modernist viewpoint uh, back into the text, so don't treat it as a 100% guide for what John D. was doing, but certainly more than close enough for role-playing games, and so I was happy to uh, uh, come across that and, and pick it up. And so by modernist viewpoint, he's reading Golden Dawn stuff into D. Right, okay. yeah, which is um, not always acceptable and is often going to uh, maybe cause you to stumble over some of the more vigorously monotheistic aspects of John D uh, in the course of uh, doing your magic. But I am very, very fond of, of Duquette by and large, and this is a good good book. For example, the uh, book one is don't try to duplicate the magic Dee and Kelly did to receive the system, just use the system they received. So <laughs> what, what could be more friendly yeah. than that? Yeah, yeah. I ask you. Nothing. Next up we have the story of Dion Fortune as told to Charles Fielding and Carr Collins. Have we done Dion Fortune? We, we haven't, Dion, so how about a we, quick 101? Uh, Dion Fortune is a, a female occultist. She got kicked out of the Golden Dawn uh, for probably being female and not truckling to Crowley. But uh, she also then set up sort of a Christian occult group called the Inner Light uh, that was a big, huge deal uh, for a while. It had its own magazine and all manner of other things. And uh, she was also a, a trans medium, and she would go into other spaces. And she was so good at going to other uh, astrally projecting that even after she died, her astral projection kept running the Inner Light for years and years after her death. So it's very diligent you, for an astral projection. What what better bona fides could you ask for? And she wrote um, sort of mediocre occult fiction that is uh, disguised. It's her trying to explain the occult in fiction. So she had a character named Dr. Taverner, who is also a great guy to throw in as an NPC if you're curious about it. But she has all manner of um, uh, of sort of very, very... If you could imagine the most respectable, straightforward, decent, tax-paying sort of magic, it would be Diane Fortune's magic. So... Um, the story of Diane Fortune explains, in other, in a, among other things, how to work with the Christ Force, how to alert the occult police, <laughs> how to um, uh, work with the elemental ray and contend with magical bodies or vampires. So it's all about, you know, any, uh, you know, good Christian magic done by good Christian ladies for good Christian purposes and also with a lot of Golden Dawn uh, coloring because that's the uh, magical tradition she came out of. Well, so she's she's terrific, and this is her biography written by two acolytes. And I suspect that one of the lessons we will learn is that Charles Fielding and Carr Collins are the only true receptacles of Diane Fortune's wisdom, and that all those other pretenders are just pretenders. But I'm still happy to have a biography of Diane Fortune, even if it's uh, going to be suspect on every imaginable level. Well, I will have to give her her own uh, segment coming up. Yep. My ears perk up at the words occult police, because uh, in our... A uh, very uh, early days uh, drama system uh, game of Alma Mater Magica. The uh, player characters have already run afoul of the occult police, so I may oh, need to no. uh, investigate that a bit. Not the occult police. Uh, and finally, Crossed Keys, the Black Dragon, and the Incuridian of Pope Leo III, translated and edited by Michael Cecatelli. And I bet an in Chiridion is not a reference to echidnas. No, it is not. And in Chiridion is a bunch of, of bits. Uh, it, it's a bunch of hands, uh, I guess, originally, but it's basically the Chiridion of Pope Leo III is psalm magic. And you use the psalms to do magic, 
and lots of good, proper Christian things. But the Inchiridion gets mentioned a great deal in, apparently, the legitimate black magic grimoire, which is very goetic, uh, the Black Dragon. And the Black Dragon is, I suspect, I don't see any mention of it earlier than the early 19th century, about 1823. Uh, someone publishes it, or there's a manuscript of it. And I suspect what it is, is someone went and they took the Black Pullet, and they took the Hand of Glory, and they took the Goetia, and they mushed them all together to make a sort of uh, best of all things grimoire. And the best of all things grimoire is called the Black Dragon because there was already a Red Dragon grimoire that people knew about, and I think that this was an attempt to borrow the power. This is like that one, but with a different breath weapon. But with, but with exactly, it had acid instead of fire. And so the, uh, but because the Inchiridion was a very, very common magic book, the Black Dragon contains lots and lots of mentions of, and here's where you'll want to use something from the Inchiridion. And, and so that crossover is what has caused Michael Sacitelli to combine them in uh, his translations of them in one handsome volume. And it is a really handsome volume. It's from the good people at the Bibliothèque Rouge, who uh, do a, a, a snazzy-looking grimoire, i got to say. And this is the last of the three books that I got at Fields. I also got the Dion Fortune book at Fields. I got out of Fields for under 60 bucks, which has never happened. Wow. Um, and so I'm wondering if death has, has caused them to be pale and weak. Uh, but there were three top-notch titles. The only downside is that the Black Dragon is a mythical grimoire in the Dracula dossier, and now I'm, I may have to change it to something else, because if there's a real Black Dragon it could cause confusion. Previously, I'd done the research, and I thought that the Black Dragon was uh, made up by French occultists in the 90s, which would make it perfect. But sadly, it looks like it was made up by French occultists in the 1820s, and therefore is real. So, so now I you have to, to switch it to the Chromatic Dragon. The Chromatic Dragon, yes. Or the... Um, uh, the, the, the uh, there, there's also apparently a green dragon somewhere, the Dragon Vert, so I can't use that. I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just thrown back on my own resources, I'm so, sure. So like Gary, the, friend, the occult movement used up all the dragons. Used up all the damn dragons, yes. I am bereft of dragon, and we'll have to figure out what to use in Dracula dossier instead. But in order to help me, I have the grimoires. Uh, the interesting thing about Sechatelli is that he claims that he was able to advance so very far in magic because he was... Uh, in solitary confinement in federal prison for four years. And so he had no other distractions except for ceremonial magic. So there you go. Oh, and and do we know why he was uh, ensconced, as it were? I didn't do the research because what if I found out he was never in federal prison and then that <laughs> becomes less fun? Then, then gray reality would, would intrude exactly. again. I don't allow, I'm like Baron von Munchausen. I believe that it's more fun if there's no doctors and no gray reality. But yeah, he was believed to hold the leadership role in what the Bureau of Prisons considers a security threat group. So I suspect he had a little black magic society and that they uh, dealt drugs or engaged in uh, whoremongering, as black magic societies often do, and that therefore he was tossed into solitary so that he wouldn't recreate it in the prison. But instead, haha, he became a Crowleyan adept, so I guess the joke's on them. Or, or somebody. Or somebody. <laughs> yes. You know, the joke could be on them and other people. It's not an either-or. Well, that's the one thing uh, the HBO series Oz, Oz lacked was a, a black magic cult as one of the factions. So It's uh, true. Uh, we'll have to do something with that thought we've as well. nerd-troped Oz. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think uh, we've uh, well pawed through your pile of books, and it's uh, time to uh, split for Parts Unknown. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Plot Points. Modern Myths. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Maintain our lateral mobility by hitting the donate button 
at KennyRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such returning donors as Rick Neal and Jacob Borsma. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or fever dream by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>